Howdy, sober family. Welcome to I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye, the podcast where we're learning to love ourselves more than booze. I'm your host, Dana Kroll. I'm a former Army chaplain who developed a toxic relationship with alcohol after leaving the military several years ago. After inpatient and outpatient recovery and a year of staying sober on my own, I relapsed and descended into a rock bottom. But thankfully, in the depths of despair, I discovered the not-so-secret solution to staying sober, which I believe is finding and contributing to a community. Soon after, I started this podcast as a way to keep myself accountable and to help others in early sobriety. With me, as always, in the studio is Al K. Hallfrey, my spirit animal and co-host. Uh, yeah, Al and I did our first IG like legitimate reel together. We did a reel on how to do reels. It was pretty comical. Al was chasing the cat around the yard. Anyway, before I ramble about myself and Al too much, today I'm excited to welcome Skip Samps from Chicago, Illinois, but he is a native of my very own hometown, Columbus, Ohio, and it turns out we grew up only a few miles away from each other. Uh, Skip is a composer and a producer with 16 years of sobriety from drugs and alcohol, and he helps performing artists who are in recovery to rediscover life in their art without resorting to deadly addictive substances that are supposedly going to help their artistic work. So by the end of today's episode, Skip and I want you to be able to think more creatively about your sobriety, and we want you to be able to connect with your muse so that you can make amends with him or her, and in doing so, we think you're going to find a greater freedom and joy in being sober. Uh, Skip, so welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Really glad. Well, tell us about your journey as an artist and a user of drugs and alcohol, and now uh, your work as a life coach for performing artists. You know, I remember the day I was uh, just a few months sober, and I got a new piano. Uh, my partner had got it for me, uh, just kind of as a uh, welcome, get back together gift. And the piano arrived, and I was trying to play an F chord, and my hand kept playing B flat. And I couldn't figure out why the hand and the head coordination wasn't working. I had been trying to sing, and nothing was coming out. Crystal meth had totally destroyed my neurological system. It had taken away my voice. And I was just, I, I felt like a part of me had died and that I was never going to be able to get it back. Uh, I remember going to a Beck concert with my friends. It was the first concert in recovery I went to. And I sat there the whole time just the music was so cool and he had this puppet show going on and it was just, you know, just totally wild and crazy and my friends were enjoying it. And I just sat there the whole time, just staring at the stage full of anger and resentment and not towards Beck. I didn't realize what was going on now, but it, it was resentment towards myself. Like I gave this up you know, or I threw it away. Um, I didn't realize at that point that I, I had given it up, right? I thought I had lost it all. And um, I had started to, I knew I needed some outlet of creativity. In my addiction, in the depths of addiction, I would finger paint on the walls, kind of like as that manic. So I thought, well, I'm gonna try painting <laughs> I went and took art classes at a community college, and I started out the semesters um, not too good, 
but it was something to do. Um, and they were graded and I was like low C's and D's. But by the end of the year, I was getting like high B's once in a while, a low A. Um, and it just dawned on me that if I can take something that I've never done before and just in a matter of nine months improve this much, then why can't I do that with music? Why can't I just start over with music? For months, I had just felt like this part of me had died, but now there was a moment of hope. Um, I started practicing my scales, uh, taking out my first grade elementary book on piano and playing and just allowing some of it to come back and retraining. And I ended up about after a year of that, getting good enough that I applied to grad school and was able to go back and um, work on composition. I still didn't have my voice back at that point, but I can work on composition and follow my dream of like learning to write for film. It's something that I'd always wanted to do. So as I went on in recovery and growing in recovery at the same time, and for me, I, I do the 12 steps. And through that process of seeing what my part is in things and then making amends and so forth, I was able to make amends with my partner. I was able to make amends with my family. I was able to make amends with an old business partner. Music was still not really connecting. There was something missing. Even though I was doing it, there was still something about the relationship that wasn't right. And what I've come to learn, Dana, is that music, for me, is like a living, breathing entity. Um, it is a spirit. It is um, it's some, it's part of the great mystery. Why does this work? Why does it speak to everyone? And when I am able to see it as a person, of course, my relationship with music is not going to be the same as it was before, nor do I want it to be the same as it was before. I don't want the relationships uh, with my family to be the same as before. I was a manipulative shit, <laughs> you know? I was the manipulative uh, guy who wanted everything my way. I'm sure people have been on here before and talked about this. There's so much drama in my family when I do my, my recovery work. Oh my God, when I start to get better, I realize there's no drama in the family. <laughs> <laughs> or at least as much, right? Yeah. So in making amends with my music, um, I get to look at things like, why am I not practicing? Why am I living in this fear of writing and have these egoic thoughts of, I'm not going to be good enough. Nobody's going to like it. Um, which to me, by the way, I replace the word addict and ego to interchange them. They, to me, are the same. They both want to be the most important. They both want nothing to do with the higher power and they both want to be in total control and just have me spiritually dead. So I'm making amends with my family. I'm making amends with friends and institutions. And what does that mean? You know, do I, do I stay away from friends because I feel like 
I, I'm, they're not going to like me on a particular day or I'm not going to be good enough for them. No, I go to them for support. When I see them, what do I do? I hug them, right? I tell them I love them um, and I receive back. When I start to put this with my creativity, when I look at it that way, my piano is sitting over there and needs love right? Every time I'm saying, I'm not going to practice because I'm not good anymore, or it's going to suck, or I'm not going to write a song. My piano is sitting over there and going, hey, I'm here for you. I am here for you. All you have to do is come over and put your fingers, you know, and I get to hug my piano. That's what it wants. And what I get in return is music flowing through me and it's, and it works together. So that to me is like this big aha of really being able to personify the music just as we personify addiction, right? And when we talk about it and as we relate to it, and as I just said, I relate it like as the ego. Um, And so I can personify that. And I look at what my higher power is and I question constantly and I'm okay. Okay with that. 16 years of questioning and going through stages of, oh, this must be my higher power. This must be my higher power. For me, music is part of that um, because I see it as creativity. Whatever created this universe is constantly creating as we keep finding out every day through these new telescope uh, traveling through space. Um, that it expands through, it created us. So therefore it is expanding through us. And music is part of that for me. And it flows through me when I allow it. And then I get to share it. And then it becomes something to bring us together, to bond us together. It's magical. It's mystical how music, it's just a whole different language that pun intended, it just brings harmony to the whole world. It brings peace, it brings joy. So again, in doing recovery work, I realized I did not lose my music. I did not lose my voice. I did not lose my family. I did not lose my recording studio. I did not lose my career. I did not lose my partner. I did not lose uh, where I live. I didn't lose anything because I willingly gave it up. And, you know, I, I used to think my family abandoned me, you know, cause there's a point, uh, healthy people will put distance between themselves and active users. Well, as addicts, we feel abandoned, right? We think we're abandoned because it's poor me. Look what they've done to me, but I abandoned them long before they abandoned me. My grandmother's 90th birthday, I'm supposed to get on this plane from Chicago to Columbus. And um, I just could not pull myself away from my pipe. And I went through this elaborate scheme of searching um, samples, airport audio samples online and getting on the phone with my dad and playing these sounds in the background going, yeah, my flight's been canceled. And I was sitting there oh, in my wow. bedroom smoking my pipe with like 
wow. these fake announcements going behind. So it was, I could, I could put myself together enough to make this elaborate scheme and have the backup sounds to go with it. But I couldn't pack a bag and get in a cab and go because that would have meant I'd have to leave my pipe. So I didn't, I wasn't there for my grandmother's 90th birthday. I abandoned them. Mm. Wow. There's so much to unpack. Like, I, gosh, I don't know what to ask you about first. I think I, the thing that jumps out at me the most, the idea of music as a universal language. And I Googled the other day, cause you mentioned like the James Webb telescope is showing us the deepest, uh, oldest infrared picture of the universe ever with this dazzling portrait of galaxies that I have as the background of my desktop. And there's just this whole big, big's not even the right word for it, universe. And here we are, these little people in here, but there's this universal language that even the universe itself speaks because I Googled, does the, what is the frequency that the universe resonates at? And it's like 432 hertz, apparently, is what the universe is vibrating at that level. And you just... Uh, as you talk about that and personifying your instruments and um, personifying your your muse, but not just the muse, but the the vehicles that you use to produce the music as an example of our artistic expression and you know your piano, um, tell me more about that because when we chatted before the episode, I remember you talking about how some days it might just be you playing scales, but you were still accepting that invitation from your piano to go. And to even just to do something as simple as playing scales and you're not feeling inspired, but you would go and sit down and play. And it was like a way to still connect with that, that living thing that's with you that helps you express yourself. Yeah. You know, I have a best friend. I text her every day, right? If I call her, she actually picks up. Nobody does that anymore, right? If she calls me, <laughs> I pick up. And we make a point of seeing each other several times a week. If I have a significant other, I'm going to tell that significant other, I love you every day, right? At least I'm going to hug that person every day. And so if I want, if I have this loving relationship with music, then I want to be doing that every day. Playing the piano is saying, I love you. Writing a little bit of music is writing some love notes to music. And it's a way to keep that going because from my experience, I look at music and my ego looks at all this that I'm not talented enough. So if I'm not talented enough, I'm not worthy. You know, actually, I realized a few years ago that I never did as well in, in college and in music school as I could have. But now I realize I didn't think I was worthy of it. Not only did I think I wasn't good, but what fed that was, I'm not even really worthy to be a good musician. I'm not really worthy of obtaining any kind of success. So why would I even try? So there's this way of, it's the very selfish way of looking at it, right? It's, it's that ego, it's very selfish. But turning that into self-love um, and e expansion of love, then reaching out to creativity, uh, like I said before, it's allowing that expansion of creativity to flow through me 
so that I can, um, in a sense, make love with the piano, make love songs, make love music, have that loving experience. And I have to put into it what I want to get out of it. I have to show up for it what I want to receive from it. Just like any relationship. This just blows me away. Like, why did it take me 50 years <laughs> on this planet to like figure this <laughs> out, right? But uh, it really has just made a huge difference for me because it helps me to grow, trust myself. It helps me, you know, it's a form of self-love, but it's also something that brings me closer with my higher power. If you could talk to me about that, tell me about your understanding of higher power as someone who does uh, a 12-step program, uh, because I think that's a sticking point for a lot of people from getting involved with um, AA or any number of programs that use 12 steps. And for me, as a former army chaplain and former pastor, and then who became a lay person who then basically has kind of walked away from all things religious. And I know that AA doesn't, it, it's not supposed to be a religious thing, but it comes across that way to some people. Tell us more about your relationship with your higher power, and then maybe how that connects, if it does, to your muse. Are your muse and your higher power connected, or, or do you have a separate oh, yeah. understanding of a higher power? No, they're, they're connected. It may not be completely, but it's part of... So um, I had gone to my first 12-step meeting when I was 21, and um, I thought, who are these drunken derelicts to tell me about God? I grew up in a pretty fundamentalist uh, denomination, um, and I grew up with loving Jesus, loving God. I just loved to sing. I was singing solos in church by the time I was three years old. Not so much for God, but because uh, people applauded me when I was done, you know. But, um, uh, but I did enjoy it. And I, as I got older and started to realize some things about myself, that I'm gay, I heard at the same time, Anita Bryant on TV and Jerry Falwell on TV. And I was hearing that God loves me, but I'm going to hell. Yeah. That's, that's the confliction message I got. And I lived a double life. I would tell my parents in high school that I was going to a prayer meeting, but I was actually going to uh, a boyfriend's house. Mm. Dana, I prayed every day, God, please don't let me be gay. I prayed, mm. prayed, prayed, don't let me be gay. And I went to Bible college and I started to be a youth pastor. And it was my sophomore year that my girlfriend told me that I need to move to Los Angeles and come out of the closet. Bless her. <laughs> right? So I did. Um, and that's when I went to music school. And uh, partially what she was, what she was really saying is you go be you, right? Leave this and you go explore and find out who you are and express yourself. Um, and you love music, go follow the music passion. So I did, and I still even tried to balance of like finding a church and 
even at that, you know, at that time, that was the late 80s, early 90s, there was no of this church reconciliation, you know, that just did wow. not exist. Yeah. Um, so I quit the church. I gained the attitude of God's people hate me, then I hate them right back. And uh, now I had come out to my family at 19. So we had worked constantly working through a lot of this. Um, I'm when glad I, you paused because I needed a second. Anyway, like I just I started tearing up because I'm like so complicit in so much laying so much guilt on people for like all these, you know, good um, all these good intentions, supposedly good intentions uh, among Christians and among lay people and preachers alike. And what gets communicated is the total mixed message of what you said, which is your and, and, and what I'm realizing is it it, it was especially especially for for gay people who internalize such conflict who truly love God and truly were loved loved Jesus and were doing these good things but yet were told at the same time and it was it was the worst re I can't fathom living a double life in the 80s and 90s in the Jerry Falwell era I can't imagine living it now but but especially 30 40 years ago I can't even fathom what that was like and i'm sitting listening to you like thinking how complicit i was in that as a as a minister all with the best of intentions and even when i was saying god loves all people what i was really still saying was the same thing that i had been told was that well you know homosexuality is it's a it's a worse sin or it's a sin at all and and now i'm like oh my god i just thank you for sharing that because i, I i've I've never really, I don't think I've ever really had anyone like tell me that so personally. Wow. So I hope that I'm not, I, I can't speak for any other Christians or former Christians other than myself. And so on behalf of myself, please let me ask, humbly ask for your forgiveness for the ways that I contributed to the kind of suffering that you've just described, because it's, it's a shitty way to live. And I'm sorry that I um, contributed to that for for people like you who love God and who love other people and quite frankly are more Christ-like than most Christians that I've known. <laughs> Dana, thank you. Anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. I forgive you for that. You are forgiven. If I weren't doing this Los Angeles thing for myself right now, I wouldn't have met you, Skip, and I wouldn't have met, uh, I wouldn't have met Mark Schultz, who is season one, episode 15, who, uh, struggle with a lot of the same issues that you're describing. And I wouldn't have met all these other wonderful people. Just thank you for describing your Los Angeles experience. And maybe you can pick back up there and, and talk about your, so you had a, a friend who said, go out to LA, figure out who you are. And you started to do that. And then maybe try to tie it back in the original thing that I like totally no. rabbit trailed us on. When I was uh, 39, there was no higher power in my life. Crystal meth was my higher power. Um, I worshiped it. I gave everything I had to be with it. Um, I abandoned everyone, everything so that I could, you know, just be with crystal meth. But there was a point three years into it, I was 39 and I was so lonely and um, I just wanted to be held. Crystal meth makes people I don't know if 
you may or may not heard this, but people become very promiscuous when they're on crystal meth. There's just something about that button that it turns on. And I had been with so many people, all I wanted was to be held. And I was so lonely. I woke up one morning and I thought today is the day the pain ends. Just go over to the L and jump. And on the L, you know, the, we call it the L in, in Chicago because it's elevated. Mm -hmm. I had been afraid to leave my house for a couple months because I would get on the L and the L would pull into the station and I was holding on to the light poles because I kept visualizing jumping or falling. Mm -hmm. So this morning when I had the thought, just go do it, it was real. It wasn't the first time I'd had suicidal ideation before. This is the first time that I made a plan. This was call to action. I thought I'm going to be 40 years old and the last 20 years, you've just sabotaged every opportunity that life has given you to succeed. You have no one around you. You have nothing to show for it whatsoever. Just go do it. And then there was this thought and they say everything changes with a thought, right? I was thinking, well, wait, if I'm 40, and I've messed up the last 20, that's half my life. But what if I, that 20 years, what if I had that on? And I, if I do something the next 20 years to like kind of cancel all that out, right? And make something and do something good, then I'll be 60 and 60 is not that old anymore, right? And then it was like, wow, if I live to be 60, what if I go another 20 years? My life doesn't have to be over. It can be half over. And I look at that now, and that was my first real connection with God, the gift mm -hmm. of desperation, G-O-D. And so I can't explain it. I was able to put aside everything else and just look at that moment and to the future. And I got up, I called um, Mike, who uh, we were separated at the time, and I said, I'm ready. And um, I went to visit my parents and they, I was very blessed that they were able to help me, um, send me to rehab. Uh, my clean date is 420, uh, 2006. Um, I love saying that it's 420 because I smoked a joint on 419. I smoked, I smoked a joint the night before. So I got to rehab and I looked up on the walls and I saw the poster of the 12 steps. And I had looked at the 12 steps before on the third step. We turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Now I call it the God of my misunderstanding the God that other people told me I needed to believe in, one that I was really never given an option, right? It was just, this is what we believe, and this is who you are, and don't right. question it, just accept it. Right. And now I've, I turn my will and my life over to the care of God of my understanding. Now, 
I go to a drug related program. And so for me, it's that group of drug addicts, G-O-D, that is the basis of my higher power. It's bigger than me. And when we sit in that circle, this power is in each one of us, but it cannot exist without any one of us. We all, everyone in that circle, it goes through. And for the first time in my life, I'm in a spiritual group and I'm included. I'm not excluded. And I know that I'm sitting in a group with Muslims, uh, Christians, Jews, atheists, you know, Buddhists. I'm sitting in a room with all these people who have different religious beliefs, uh, many agnostics, but it doesn't matter. You know, we use the right. term God as just something to that we, we all know. It just gives us a word to communicate higher power. It just gives us a word to communicate that we are connecting with something greater than ourselves. Tell me about your muse, though. How does that connect to your muse? And how did you make amends with that muse? We've also talked about the personification of uh, music and or your and or your piano as an example. So how did you make as part of your 12 steps? How did you make amends with your muse and rediscover your voice? Because earlier you talked about losing your voice. That's losing the voice is huge part of this. And and I think our voice shows up through our passions. Right. When I sing that's a very literal our voice shows up when we do a podcast it's very literal use of voice but our voice also shows up in our art our voice shows up um, when we vote our voice shows up in so many different ways of life and i go back to how when i use my voice talk about being a charlatan where does that come from when I was 14, I preached my first sermon, mm. but I was also having my first sexual experiences with boys. So <laughs> my voice was a lie at mm. that point. I couldn't speak my true voice. Um, so my music was associated with religion. So when I left religion and started to pursue other things, always in the back of my mind, you know, it's, it's like, is this really right? Am I really allowed to use this? Um, because of the things that I was, the things that I internalized from what I thought people were telling me, I, I can't, I can't say what people were telling me. I can only express my perception of it. And as I told you, God loves you, but you're going to hell. Right. Right. So right. there is that worth of, wow, I have this gift of music, but I'm not using it for this particular way of what I'm told to use to glorify the God that I'm told to understand. Am I really even worthy of this gift? And then I get into the addiction and, you know, I start self-sabotaging because I don't feel like I'm worth any of it. So there is a huge disconnect. And even once I come out of the closet, I hear the chatter of my family. 
and um, my friends talking about, it, it, in my head, in my head, talking about, you know, my sexuality and how I'm wrong. And so when I go to speak up, I always hear that chatter and I feel the tightness in my throat. I have HIV. And when I would speak up about HIV, certain family members or friends or people from my past would just lash out at me, lash out, screaming at times, how selfish I was to talk about that. And um, so again, my voice is crushed and right. I still have to work through that today. Honestly, that's, it's an ongoing process, Dana, because anytime that I do something, I mean, we just had the brief conversation about feeling like a charlatan, right? That's, yeah. I have to like work through that because that's why I feel that. So when I make a stronger connection with my higher power and realize that these people are not my higher power, their philosophy is not my higher power. And in fact, it's none of my business what they think of me. It is none of my business what people think of me. That is the first lesson I learned in recovery that allowed me to really keep an open mind. It is none of my business what people think of me. You're going to ask something. No, no, sorry. Oh. No, I was, I was like reaching over to grab my highlighter to highlight none of my business, what people think of me. I was, it's something I need to remember. So tell me about your coaching program and tell me about some of the things that you do now as you're working through things and then make sure to include how people can get a hold of you because I don't want to forget to ask that at the end as well. So I found that my connection, how I can really recover um, and heal these wounds with what um, the God of my misunderstanding is to allow the creativity to flow through me. And I love doing mirror work with people um, because we get to look in the mirror and say some really beautiful things like look in the mirror and say, I love you. If you've never done it before, do it and say it and mean it. And if you don't mean it, just keep saying it. And eventually you're going to see that face looking back at you saying, I love you. And it's so overwhelming, beautiful. But we say, you know, it's okay to say, you know, oh, I got my COVID weight, I'm fat. And people are like, oh, you don't look that fat. Oh my gosh, I'm so stupid. Oh, you're not stupid. Oh, I sucked on that song. No, it was good. But if I say, hey, Dana, I just learned this song. I just learned this song and I'm so I've got it down. I feel so good about it. I play it very well. Oh my God, who is that egoic person talking about himself? So we are, we're conditioned not to be able to give ourselves love, not to be able to express the goodness that is within us. And this, this shuts us down from creativity, right? One of my favorite things is just to tell people you are amazing right it's so wild to see their response sometimes why why are you saying that to me why what am i doing that's amazing i have 16 years of sobriety but i have 16 years of working through all kinds of different processes to get to a point where i can 
have this relationship with music, you know, that just didn't happen. Even when I was going back to music school, it did not come to the point where it is today. And I don't have to be a rock star. My dreams have changed. I can let go. And my relationship with music is different. And that's good. And so I have a lot of this experience that um, I went back to University of Miami where I got my graduate degree, but I also got a certification and um, professional coaching there. So I could um, really work with people, not telling people how to get back their creativity because all that has to come within and a good coach stands beside a person and walks through them and is just aware you know um michael jordan's coach did not go out and play basketball for him right the coach stands by observes makes suggestions watches and observes and sees where he's conflicting himself and gives suggestions on how to do some things differently why would you want to do it differently? So that's what I do as a coach is really just help someone to look deeper within, go deeper within themselves. And I create a safe environment where they can explore that and we can explore it together. So I've now even taken it, I've been doing this for about eight years and now I've just, I've zoned in to musicians and performing artists and artists in general in recovery who are making amends with their muse without the use of drugs and alcohol. And so I've put together a 12 week program where we explore that together. Um, they'll meet with me as the full group seven times during those 13 weeks and six times they'll, they'll be broken up into smaller pods where they're working together on what is it that they want creatively? You know, sometimes yeah. it's hard to let go of those dreams we had when we were 20 years old and we get that confused with, um, oh, I meant to be this rock star, but now I'm too old. So I'm just going to let it all go away. Right. Um, my first yeah. amends with music was I had to surrender some of that and say, it's okay to teach. Oh my God, actually, if I want to get better, I got to teach. Um, but it's different for everyone. Sometimes it's, as I was sharing earlier, my creativity started through, uh, artwork, visual art, getting my creativity back. So sometimes that's the road for people and that's the direction they want to take. The way to find out more about that is my coaching website, which is www.mysuccess.coach. I call it the recover your creativity call. It's a half hour call. Talk to me, no fee. It's totally 100% complimentary. And let's just have a conversation to see where you are with your creativity and what you want to do, what maybe needs to be healed and explored and what direction do you want to take it and how can you get there? But what would you say to others in the audience who maybe consider themselves not so artsy or not so music-y or may music-y, whatever that, <laughs> um, like somebody who maybe wants to reconnect with that part of themselves? Well, thanks. Thanks for asking that because I have a two-part answer. Number one is that when I say this, I, some people assume that I'm talking about professional musicians, professional artists and professional performing artists or whatever. Some people may have not done this in years and think, well, I can't do that again. I'm not talking about, yes, I do work with professionals, 
but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking okay. about people just getting in touch with um, whatever it is, whatever their level they're at, um, whether you can read music, whether you can't, whether you can draw a straight line if you're an artist or not. You know, that's not what I'm speaking of. This is really about getting into what is my muse? How can I reconnect with it? Or how do I want to connect with it in a way that I never knew possible? So that's one part of the answer. The other part is we are all creative. People tell me they're not creative. It's a lie. It's a lie that they're telling themselves. It's a lie they've been told and they believe. We are all creative. We create our lives. We create our opportunities. We create a lot of the times the drama in our lives. We create that. So if someone says, I'm not a creative, I challenge you to look at that and really look at the things that you have manifested in your life because it started somewhere. And a lot of the times it started with, if I think I'm not creative, then I'm not going to create. And that in of itself is a creation. Thank you for sharing that because that's helpful for me to remind myself that I am I am a creator, not just a digital creator as I named myself on Instagram, but I'm a creator of thoughts and words and actions. And one thing I learned from you and took to heart in this episode is that my voice itself is, my, there's not just finding my voice in general, like my voice itself can be my voice. And uh, like I, I am creating something artistic right now, just by speaking and for people who are deaf or mute are able to express things through signing and just through the movements of their bodies. And, um, so we, we are, we're all creators. Uh, it's beautiful. And the, and maybe that'll segue into this last question, because this is what I ask every guest. And, uh, if you had 30 seconds left in your life, skip, no pressure, but what would you say to people based on your 55 years of learning things? Wow. I think I said it. Use your voice, use your voice. You are creative, tap into that creativity and use your voice to let it be seen, let it be heard, share your experiences. They are real. Your experiences, whether you think they are good or bad, they are real and they're helpful. That's why you were here to leave those experiences so others can become better. I, man, I, if you just heard that and you're not inspired, then I invite you to send me a negative email <laughs> because like, that, that, wow. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining Skip Owl and me for this episode of I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye. You can connect with Skip on Instagram. He's at sober on stage. You can also get connected with him, as he said, at www.mysuccess.com. Dot coach skip i want to thank you so much for uh joining me on this episode i'm so grateful for uh to have made your acquaintance but then to call you a friend and a sober brother absolutely this was fun al and i would and skip would like to bid you a happy sober day wherever you are and we'll say until next time goodbye alcohol and hello life much love and peace <laughs>